For this episode, we partner with Seattle Sperm Bank. Did you know Seattle Sperm Bank ships to fertility clinics anywhere in the U.S.? Seattle Sperm Bank is one of the nation's most trusted sperm donor resources and can provide the guidance and expertise you need to find the best donor for your family building journey. With over 200 carefully screened open ID donors, they offer the simplest and most transparent pricing structure in the industry, saving patients money versus other sperm banks. And most importantly, Seattle Sperm Bank has a reputation for high quality sperm vials, which we can back up with specimens we've received at our own clinics giving patients the best chance for pregnancy. Visit their website at seattlespermpaint.com. You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Carrie Veeding with another episode of Fertility Docs Uncensored. I'm from the Fertility Center of Las Vegas, and I am joined by my two simply lovely, ravishing, uh, mellifluously, uh, mellifluously, yeah, that's the word, voice, co-host. I don't know what that word means. What is that? Define that for us. It means just lovely and melodic voiced. Ah. Melodious, you mean? No, mellifluous. Mellifluous. I've added a new word to my vocabulary. Is that a portal word? No, that is more than five. (laughs) Too many letters for too many letters for that. It is more than five letters. I am outraged and offended that you (laughs) would accuse Quirtle of breaking the rules. (laughs) Um, I was somewhere. Oh yeah, Susan Hudson from Texas Fertility Center and Abby Evelyn from Nashville Fertility Center. There you go. Hey. We broke the flow today. This is what we happens when you introduce new vocabulary. We're like, oh, wait, we don't understand. I can spell it. I can't say it, but I can spell it. Well, spell it. Spell it for me. Oh, shit. You're calling me on it. M E L I F L U O U S. Mellifluous. That is a hard word to say. Mellifluous. I'm, in, I'm <laughs> impressed by that, yeah. Carrie. Okay. Yeah. Like, I know I'm in Vegas, but I have not been drinking this morning. <laughs> well, you couldn't have said that word if you'd been drinking. <laughs> I don't know. I might have been able to get it, uh, get it out a little bit better. Like when I'm, like, I know your tongue. I don't drink more than like a glass of anything too terribly often. But when I do, I all of my censorship completely drops away, and I, uh, I just start talking, and I just go on and on and on. And so it will probably roll off my tongue a little bit easier. I didn't want to bring that up, but I, I have experienced one or two times, at least once, when that happened. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm very well, we digress. <laughs> um, so what's new? What's going on? Well, we were talking about our, our plans for the future. I was talking about my plans for the future. One of these days, I want to go to a bunch of different um, national parks. And, you know, in Tennessee, we have Smoky Mountain National Park, but we don't have all that many on the east side of the country. And you were just telling me about Vegas, how it's a good stopping or, or good place to start from. It's it's a good jumping point because you fly, you fly into Vegas and within probably a five to six hour drive, you have the Grand Canyon, you have National Tree, uh, Joshua Tree National Monument, you have Bryce Canyon, you have Where's Zion Joshua National Tree? Park. Where's Joshua Tree? It's in California. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. it's like, it's just, it's the east side of California. Okay. Um, you have Death Valley. You have, oh, there's another one that one of my friends just went to that they came back with gorgeous pictures that I don't remember the name of because it's one of the smaller ones. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just. How like far the, away are you from the arches? Um, That is, 
don't know. I feel like everything is like five to six hours. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And that's where was the where oh. was the one you hiked in last year and it got dark and you're trying to find your way out? Was that close close uh, to where? Remember you were with the other group of people and you said it kind of you lost your way a little bit. And, oh well, never mind. I don't remember <laughs> that. Clearly, it was traumatic enough that it, it totally. You were got... on vacation. It was last summer, I think. Oh, that was Yosemite. Yosemite. Okay. That was Yosemite. That's that is further. That's like a okay. You have to, okay. Um, okay. That's that's better to fly into Northern California and do um, just because it's it's a. Uh, it's a hall. It's a Are hall. you having PTSD now that I made you recall that to your frontal lobes? <laughs> um, not in particular, mostly because the the yelling that went on from the small humans in my life was remarkably similar to yelling that went on this morning when I had the audacity to cut a waffle before I put syrup on the waffle. And uh-huh. so that's more just like the constant PTSD that I have. And uh, so okay. there, there was no extra layer. Not that big of a deal. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Y'all are so funny. Yeah. Do we We have questions? We do have questions. We do have questions. Okay. Um, Our first one is, hi, huge fan of the podcast. I have a weight-related question. I've always been a bit petite, 5'2", and weight hovers around 99 pounds. I feel like I eat well, plenty of plant-based protein, carbs, veggies, fruit, and exercise a healthy amount, walking dogs, occasional yoga. Overall, my cycles seem regular. Could my weight be causing fertility-related issues? So Cycles are regular? Regular? Yes. yes. So I'm going to do a plug right now because I just scheduled three uh, weight and nutrition guests to come on in the next couple of months here. And so tune in because we're talking about the weight loss drugs and we are talking about nutrition. And then there's, God, there was one other topic that we have have all set that I'm waiting on the final word for that one. But um, tune in because we are all over this topic. Um, But that said, yeah, possibly. Um, Thyroid is oftentimes the first thing to go to give you kind of any any sign that there's something going wrong, particularly when you have the lower caloric intake issues. Now, it sounds like you are, you know, getting getting in a good amount, but the question is, is it enough for you and enough for what your body is putting out? Because sometimes people who say, oh, I eat healthy, they're the ones who the the composition and the ratios of what they're eating is great. It's just not enough. And so particularly for a level of activity, like nutritionists are fabulous people to help with this because there's so, so many things that play into this that um, a lot of women are not eating enough for their body size. And, and that has an impact. And 99 pounds at five foot two is probably a little bit on the thin side. And yeah, absolutely. Uh, though, though we don't have a whole lot of that um, necessarily. We definitely have more people who struggle with the opposite end. Um, definitely seen people who needed to be um, more cognizant of, like Carrie said, you, you sometimes just need more calories. I mean, you need good, mm-hmm. healthy food to fill up those calories. Um, but, you know, it, it's it's one of those things that having not, not having enough body fat in, in your body is actually not good for building babies. And so there, there is a healthy balance. Yeah. I was just going to suggest that too. I read something uh, not too long about long ago about how cholesterol and fat for some people is important, even though you're of normal body weight and you ovulate regularly that, you know, fat and cholesterol are building bone for estrogen and progesterone and all the hormones. And so, you know, I don't know that there's a lot of data if you're having regular cycles that your weight, you know, is the cause of fertility. But I, I think there's something to that. I, I noticed you eat plant 
based protein, and that's probably fine. But see if you can get more like whole milk in your diet, more cheeses and things like that. And that may give you a little bit more cholesterol to help with, you know, making estrogen and progesterone the hormones you need for pregnancy. And cholesterol is important for building a a pregnancy. And when, when we go in and do surgeries for miscarriages and we can actually see pregnancy tissue, it's yellow. <laughs> and it's yellow yeah. because the building blocks of pregnancy is cholesterol. And that's one reason you can't take cholesterol medications while you're trying to conceive. Mm-hmm. And we don't, I mean, it's not, it's not a hard and fast rule that if you follow a vegan diet that you have to come off of that in order to conceive. Um, but I think all of us have definitely seen patients where once they did that, even temporarily, very lightly doing, you know, whatever, whatever they found they needed to add back in, that it made huge improvements. So it's not, it's not like we're saying you cannot get pregnant with a vegan diet. Uh, it's just sometimes your body really does need that little extra help, especially if it's been running in a deficit for a while. Real good. Uh, it needs that extra little bit of of loading up and and priming all of the engines and getting everything set and ready to go. Um, and so, you know, nutritionists are super helpful in this. More to come on that, right, Carrie? <laughs> More to come. Yes. 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 All right. One more question. Um, hi, love your podcast. I'm 39 with an AMH of 0.451. My IVF was canceled from a flare protocol. With DOR, what is the most aggressive protocol? My doctor suggested mini IVF, then said an antagonist protocol with estrogen patches and letrozole 300 follows stem 150 of Minipure. I also froze two eggs overseas in 2018. What are the chances of those eggs to survive the thaw? The cancel protocol, estrogen patches before the period, um, MD, Lupron, five mils, two times a day throughout. Microdose. Oh, microdose, okay. <laughs> I was like, uh, Clomid, 100 for five days. Follistim, 300. Menopure, 150. Day 2, FSH, 5.4. E2, 102. Estradiol, 54 on day 6. And 232 on day 10. Follicles on day 10. Um she had five of them, a 10, a seven, and three small ones. So, I mean, you know, the problem is it's an individual. You know, you said, which one's the most aggressive? Well, some work for some people, some work for others. You know, there's no hard and fast rule, but I will say for many, many years, the microdosely prone flare protocol was the go-to protocol for people who were poor responders. And then I think probably five to six years ago, a lot of us evolved to doing a little bit of a different protocol, but, you know, it's kind of unique to you. And it's kind of one of those things, unfortunately, it's trial and error. And, you know, I, if you, you know, if your estrogen level was 104, I think on day five after microdose sleep run, that's, that's kind of low. That's pretty low. And unfortunately, if you just don't have enough good eggs for us to retrieve, it's not going to be helpful to continue. So kind of the answer to your question is, I think it's probably important for your doctor to look at what other protocols you may have done if you have and kind of look at everything and try and see if they can come up with sort of a different twist on that to see if it may be helpful. But in reality, it may be pretty tough to stimulate you with a with an AMH at 0.4. So a couple of things. One, you were taking letrozole. So you need to take your estrogen levels with a huge grain of salt. Realize that letrozole can work really well. True, in yeah who have diminished ovarian reserve in combination with the injectables and sometimes with Clomid. Um, But the letrozole is going to artificially cut your estrogen levels. So it essentially makes them, we we still watch them, but the true value of them, you have to take them with a big grain of salt. We use letrozole like in our breast cancer patients um, to keep their estrogen levels low. So take your estrogen level with a grain of salt. The other thing is don't get hung up on what day of stem you're necessarily on. Mm-hmm. Um, so used to, say, 10, 15 years ago, day of stem made a big difference because if you went beyond day 12, 
what would happen would be your progesterone levels would start rising and your endometrium would go through its conformational change and your implantation rates were going to suck. Okay. And now with a lot of medical term. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Got it. And, And now, since we're doing freeze protocols, we we don't necessarily have to base our decision making on oh no, you're on day ten and and you haven't st- your follicles aren't where they necessarily need to be. If they're growing, they they can continue to grow because we really don't care what's happening to the endometrium, and we can make our decision just based on the follicles. So um, that that those are some things to kind of keep in mind, and and just I do agree with Abby. Some some protocols work better with some people than others, um, and, and so I. I would just well, and remember, this was this this was a microdose Lupron flare protocol too. This wasn't just a like FSH one fifty. I mean, she was on a pretty hefty protocol and yeah. didn't respond particularly well. I aggressive, mean, aggressive is all with respect to what the highest potential is. So aggressive in someone who is twenty years old with PCOS and a follicle count of forty is very very different than aggressive in someone who is you know forty two with a follicle count of three and. Um, and and baseline high FSH levels. And so sometimes what we find that aggressive is less related to the medication doses and more related to how many times you go in to get eggs out. And so we know that we could hit you with every single medication in the book at super high doses, and it's not going to make a difference compared to Clomid, 100 milligrams, and that's it. And so with that in mind, you just kind of got to know that sometimes it, it aggressive in this context is, okay, I am going to plan to do this multiple times in a row, back to back, with no intention of growing out to blast until I get further on because I'm going to do a 2 p.m. freeze because that consolidates some of the financials. Like there's, we we have different kind of specialty protocols for people where we're never going to get more than one or two. And so all of a sudden the game changes, unless you are independently wealthy, from doing just one cycle where you get every Everything into doing like, okay, let us let us mentally plan. We are going to have to do three cycles, six cycles more. And we do it at a really low dose. We try and maximize the financial to your benefit all the way through so that you can get through that many cycles just in order to have a shot at having enough eggs at work. And so aggressive is not just with respect to meds. It's There's other things to consider too. And it's all in the context of what your max potential is. And so someone who's got two eggs, I'm never going to expect to get 10 out of that, you know, but if I can do it five times, maybe I'll get 10 out of that. Right. And in regards to your two eggs that you froze five years ago, I would almost use those in conjunction with mm-hmm. another stimulation. So you're mm-hmm. maximizing your, at the same time and- your embryology um, costs. And so get those in and and take advantage of those because heck yeah, I mean, I'd rather have eggs five years ago from everybody. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Absolutely. Okay, so today what we are going to talk about is how how that initial consultation goes. And I think all three of us have had the experience of you have a patient come in and you say, okay, well, let's get testing. And she goes, oh no, I already did everything with my OBGYN. And, and that means something different depending on where you are sitting. Just like just like a medication protocol means something different depending on where you're starting, what I've had all the testing means depending on who you had that done with. And so this is not slamming any other part of our profession in any way. It's just there, there are very real differences between them. I, I want to interject before we get started. And one thing that we do want you to understand is some OB-GYNs are going to do some part of a fertility evaluation and some OB-GYNs are not. Both are okay. They are both very reasonable. 
reasonable parts Absolutely. of the practice. The, the, you know, the important thing to know is if your OB-GYN feels comfortable with it and they have an interest and all those kinds of good things, they're going to do a little bit more. If it's really not what's in their wheelhouse, they're going to refer you to somebody like us who this is what we live, live and breathe every day. So it's fine no matter which way your OB-GYN works. And neither one is a reason not necessarily to go back to them after you're pregnant. Okay. But they, they all have their strengths. Well, and I'll say interject here. One of the helpful things is I agree with Susan 100% because some people just don't like fertility. They like delivering babies or they like doing surgery. And they're like, I had, there's a physician that refers and she goes, I just want to give it to you because I don't know any of that stuff. I don't want to deal with any of that stuff. And yeah. other people love doing the work that, and that's great. But whichever type of doctor you have, particularly if you have the one that likes to do the workup, it's really, really helpful if you make sure that they sent your records and call and check and make sure that we've gotten your records before you show up because we all feel frustrated, including, you know, our patients and us when they're like, but they said they were going to send all this information. I can't believe you don't have it, you know? And, and so it's really it, helpful if they, if you know for sure that they send it or that you bring it yourself to the visit yourself so that we have it. And realize when you request that information, most states give an office up to 30 days to send but, that yeah. information. So if you call up the office and it's two days before your appointment, we're probably not going to get it. So just be prepared and understand that there's there's a process for that. And also know that chaos goblins live in office fax machines. <laughs> yes. And, and we have all had the experience of our staff member on the line with the other office staff member actively putting through whatever it needs to be and it not going through. And so it is nothing against the intelligence or skill of anybody's office staff. It is there are deliberate medical office chaos, chaos goblins that live in fax machines, whether it's digital or the old school, whatever. And um, they're very good at what they do, which is not doing anything. <laughs> um, so I have another tiny little side note because Susan, every time you and I both say this, it cracks me up. I, I grew up in training with OB-GYN or gyne. And every time, Susan, you say it, it's OB-GYN. And that makes me think of a little fizzy drink with <laughs> cheap garnishes on it. So, Abby, remind me of ob OB-GYN. Okay, so all three of us are different. All right. Yeah. <laughs> I never realized that we all three do it differently. Who knows? It's, Who knows? it's all regional. Um, mm -hmm. So, okay. So, what are the basic differences between the levels of providers that you might see if you are going to an OB's office or an REI office. So what's just let's talk about the MDs involved here or DOs. What are what are APRNs? Or APRNs. We're gonna we're gonna we go should to probably that break down what those letters all mean. Yeah. We should. Okay. So what first of all, what is MD and DO, what does that signify? Medical doctor and doctor of osteopathy. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So these are both groups of individuals who attended medical school. Okay. And became physicians and then went on to do further training in OB-GYN as a residency. So, and that four-year training program. Okay. I was just about to ask that. What does medical school mean? Because sometimes I'll walk into an office and somebody will say, oh yeah, I went to medical school and it means something very different to them than it does to me. Okay. So four years of medical school that happened after what kind of preamble to get into medical school? College. <laughs> yep. With just a whole... Studying really hard in college and trying to make really good grades so you can get in medical school. So you get into medical school and you do your four years. Okay. 
what happens if you are uh, a general OBGYN, which is what, you know, kind of the the name of the class of colleagues who they see everybody. And what they do is absolutely horrifying to me because the thought of having to be responsible for the level of information and the breadth in particular, they are, I think, our general OBGYN colleagues are phenomenal because I could not do that at all. I am way too OCD and would probably drive myself into a hole doing that. And I have a lot of respect for those who do it. So what what training happens next once you graduate medical school? So you go through residency, which is a four-year program that you gradually gain experience and knowledge in a specific field. And in this specific field, it's OB-GYN. So women's health care, everything from obstetrics, delivering babies and prenatal care um, to just regular everyday gynecology, pap smears, cancer, um, abnormal bleeding, just anything gynecologically related. And that is throughout a woman's entire life. <laughs> Receptiva DX is a powerful test that can help detect inflammatory conditions on the uterine lining that might be preventing you from becoming pregnant or staying pregnant. If you've experienced implantation failure or recurrent pregnancy loss, ask your doctor about Receptiva DX testing. If found, uterine inflammation can be treated, providing a new pathway to achieving a successful pregnancy. Receptiva DX, because the journey's worth it. Now, when you're looking at OBGYNs, GYNs, GYNs, whomever, these people, generalists, let's do that. When you're looking at generalists versus REIs, what's the difference in training between those two groups of physicians? So REIs have had additional training, usually three years, um, usually two years of research and one year of kind of active practice and learning how to do egg retrievals and taking care of infertility patients. Um, and then basically at that point, they're able to go out in practice as a reproductive endocrinologist. And what's the difference in the the tests and the ongoing training between those two groups of physicians? It's awful. <laughs> I, I would say, well, you're meaning tests like board certifications and things like this. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'm just making sure I'm like, Reading the carry mind. Um, so, you go, what do you mean you can't read my mind automatically by now? You I mean, that. I I'm pretty good at about. it. I'm pretty good at it. Yeah, I was so, say. so, as a general OB/GYN, you take a written board exam and you also do an oral board exam that you have to pass. Okay, so th three hours in front of three people. Yeah, with shooting questions at you right and left for three hours. So that that's for your general OB/GYN boards, and so most OB/GYNs are going to go through that process as well as reproductive endocrinologists. Now, the REIs, the reproductive endocrinology and infertility specialists, are also going to do a whole additional set of written board exams and oral board exams to be double board certified in general OB-GYN and reproductive endocrinology. Mm -hmm. And then as we're doing our maintenance of certification or MOCs, so all physicians have to do that. What's the difference between the, the general OB-GYNs and the REIs with respect to that? We have to do more. <laughs> well, we have to, I, I don't think we have to do more. I think we just have to do REI. Like half of what we, half of the questions that we do have to be REI, right? And then half of them have to be, they sort we of We have to do all around. the REI questions they give us and then fill in the rest yeah. with the general stuff. Yeah. And what that means is we read roughly 
what does it amount to about how many papers do we read a year? About like 30, I think. For about 30 and about 15 of those papers are ones that our board has chosen as being really good papers that we need to know about, need to understand. So really top-notch research has been done. And so, you know, if there's some really important study that's come out in the following, the previous year, generally that's one of the articles that we have to read as part of our continued medical education, which is really good. I mean, I think yeah. it's good for everybody, I think. Yeah. And it's a little different than the, the general OB-GYNs where they're, they're reading in the same number of articles, but there is a spread over multiple subjects. subdisciplines, like yeah, the oncology and the reconstructive surgery and the hormone and like all the things. So OB. okay, so that's the difference in training between an OBGYN and an RE. And those, in order to be either one of those, you need to either you have to have gone through four years of medical school, either as an MD or a DO. Now, there's other types of people that you may encounter in these offices as well. So PAs and APRNs. Now, what do those letters stand for? Physician assistant or advanced practice registered nurse. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and sometimes they'll go just by NPs. Sometimes you'll even see mm-hmm. nurse midwives too. So there's mm-hmm. kind of different, there may be different initials, but a lot of times that's their their background is in nursing basically, as opposed to a PA that's actually gone to medical school for a couple of years. Well, PA is, so, and I don't know all of these details in in super finite levels. So if you guys do, please chime in. So EAs, NPs, nurse midwives, they've all gone through college, right? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And then they all have bachelor's degrees and then they have usually, I believe, two years of classwork. Mm -hmm. And then the remainder of their training is really on the job training. So I have a married, I have some part people who both have one that a PA and an in, in a, a nurse practitioner in the same family. So they were kind of comparing and contrasting. But from what I understand, PAs go to medical school, do two basic science years, but that's where they stop. And then it's more on the job training after that. Whereas nurse practitioners, it's like a master's in nursing, essentially. And you you can choose kind of what track you want to go on. There's a women's health nurse practitioner. If you want to deliver babies, you go on the, the track of a midwife. Um, there's prison nursing. There's psychiatric nurse. Seeing there's kind of different tracks that you can choose. And most of the ones in our field are women's health nurse practitioners and sometimes family nurse practitioners too. So that's the other track that nurse practitioners can take. And they can also get their PhD in as a nurse practitioner. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the the differences in some of these um, can be pretty substantial. And so it just depends on who you're seeing and what you're seeing them for as to how much that might make a difference because the PAs and the nurse practitioners are oftentimes really fabulous. I mean, in the same percentages that your doctors are going to be fabulous and some are not. Um, but but there's a pretty substantial difference in the number of hours they have logged before they are even eligible yes, to sir. be able to do the on-the-job training. Like the REs are, are going to be at the high end of that because it's 15 years. It's four of college, four of med school, four of OBGYN residency, and three of a fellowship compared to the OBG, uh, OBGYNs, which is Four of college, four of med school, four of residency compared to the the advanced practice RNs or the PAs where it's the four of college and then, you know, two or kind three. Kind like a master's program, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so there's some pretty marked differences in there. So it's helpful to know who you're seeing depending on the level of complexity that you have. Um, and so that's, that's kind of helpful to keep in mind. And so you can see potentially any of these people in any of the offices that you go into. So once you see them, let's say that you are walking into a general general OBGYN office. And so at that point, you could be seeing a general OBGYN, PA, APRN. And 
You say, I've been trying to get pregnant for 12 months in one day and it hasn't happened and I'm 30 years old and so fix it. What happens? <laughs> so some people are going to refer you straight to an REI like we just mentioned. Okay. Sure. And again, that is fine, but it's not the only option. If they want to do some of the evaluation, the things that are they, that they are most likely to do is to send you to get an HSG or hysterosalpingogram. This is an x-ray of your uterus and fallopian tubes while we inject some dye through the tubes to see if the tubes are open and healthy appearing. They sometimes may send your partner for a basic semen analysis, looking at things like count, motility, and shape. Um, and occasionally, they will do some labs. The most common labs that I see them do are an AMH level or anti-mullerian hormone, which gives us um, more information on quantity of eggs as compared to quality and often check your thyroid with a TSH level. Now, the important thing for you to understand about TSH levels, so people sometimes get a little confused on them. TSH <laughs> stands for thyroid stimulating hormone. It's actually the hormone your brain produces that tells your thyroid what to do. So if your thyroid is not working well and your your brain is having to work really hard to tell the thyroid to do its job, your TSH levels are going to be high, but that is in relationship to hypothyroidism or low thyroid hormones. So brain's working hard to get the thyroid to do what it's doing. So that's hypothyroidism. Whereas if your TSH level is super low, it's because your thyroid's screaming and that would be hyper thyroidism or high thyroid hormone levels, both of which can cause some issues. Okay. So let's say for a moment that you were to go straight to an RE's office. And so like like Susan was saying, sometimes sometimes you'll come out of a general OBGYN office and they'll be like, no, no, just go see them because they don't want to deal with it. And that's that is a perfectly valid you know, response as is a response of saying, oh yeah, let's get this testing going. Um, if you walk into an RE's office, what tests are they they going to or order? And so let's think about it in terms of you started with HSG. So that's a tubal evaluation. So if you walk into an RE's office, are they going to do tubal evaluation, first of all? Yes, definitely. And what but there's a couple couple of different options that they have. So a lot of times, sometimes we'll send patients for HSG tests for whatever reason, maybe cost, maybe closer to home because we have patients that come from far away and sometimes they don't have easy access to our office. A lot of times we like to do a saline sonogram. It's a test where we put just saline or water up inside the uterine cavity. And it's really a better test to really look at the cavity. Um, HSGs, if they're a perfect test and we have a perfect view, sometimes we'll be able to see if there's a big polyp or big fibroid. But more subtle things we don't pick up so much. So if we're really focused on the cavity, the saline sonogram is a better test. Um, we can also put air bubbles through the fallopian tubes. And I would say, you know, 98, 95% of the time we can see the air bubbles. If we can't, sometimes we will send somebody for an HSG because that is probably a little bit easier test to see the tubes. But a lot of times we can kill two birds with one stone. And so for a lot of our patients, we really choose um, to do a saline sonogram because we can see subtle abnormalities. We can see if fibroids are close to the endometrium. Or, or, you know, close to where the baby would be or if they're actually pushing into the cavity, which is bad. Um, and so generally we recommend doing that, or I'd say most probably REIs would recommend that over an HSG. So I do, I do both for different reasons. I, I think that HSG gives me a better view in, of the fallopian tubes and helps me delineate like hydrosalpinks a little bit yeah. easier 
than I agree, yeah. the, the bubbles. And so if I have somebody who I'm worried about tubes, I'll do the HSG. If I have somebody who I'm worried about the lining, um, if you have heavy bleeding, if you have irregular bleeding, which means you're not shedding your lining on a regular basis, um, those are people that I often will do a saline ultrasound. So I do both and a lot of people. Yeah, as a side note to that too, when you said how to stop pinks, it made me think if you know that you've had pelvic inflammatory disease or some sort of pelvic infection or have strong reason to believe that one of your tubes or both of your tubes are blocked, be sure and make sure that's discussed with your OBGYN and because and, a lot of times we'll give you antibiotics to take ahead of time. There's a slightly higher risk than normal if you have if you've had a pelvic infection, somehow it can be kind of reactivated and you can get a pretty severe um, issue with, with infection in your tubes if, you, you know, if, if, if you're not prophylaxed with antibiotics. And generally, if you get antibiotics, that usually takes care of that. We don't really give it as a routine for everybody because we would probably given, be given way more antibiotics than need to be given. But if you've ever had a pelvic infection, be sure you share that with your OBGYN or your uh, REI before you have that test. So... What tests, and this is something that can be done by OBGYNs or REIs, I think REIs are a little bit more likely to go to this a little bit sooner just by virtue of the patients that we see, but what are the surgical options for evaluating the uterus and the tubes? So hysteroscopy and laparoscopy are the two types of surgeries that probably we do more commonly. Laparoscopy is where we make an incision in the belly button and probably two or three small five millimeter incisions in the lower abdomen. The purpose of that surgery is to be able to, or one of the reasons we do the surgery is to be able to look at the fallopian tubes, the uterus, the ovaries. We can evaluate for things like endometriosis. Um, we can also evaluate and make sure that there's not damage to the, the fallopian tubes. And in some cases, we may try and fix that. Some cases, we may actually take the tube out if it's really too damaged um, to be repaired. Um, the other procedure that we do is hysteroscopy. That's where we put a telescope up inside the uterine cavity. You're asleep for all this. And we can also do it at the same time that we're doing the laparoscopy surgery as well. But it's a way to look inside the cavity and also treat any problems that may be there, like get rid of fibroids if they're there or polyps that they're there and just make the cavity more normal and more healthy for an embryo. Yeah. And how can you evaluate the tubes during a laparoscopy? We can inject some blue dye. Um, through the cervix into the uterus to be able to pull, come out the fallopian tubes that you can, we can actually see, see in real time um, during the laparoscopy looking at your pelvis. So we can see if your tubes appear swollen or hydrosalpanks. Um, we can make sure that they are open. We can tell if the fimbria, the little ends of the fallopian tube look nice and um, filmy and um, feathery, uh, which is what you know, they're supposed to look like, or if they look clubbed, like the end of your, like if it looks like a fist versus being feathery and more like your fingers. Okay. So to compare and contrast, general OBGYNs are typically, they typically have reasonable access to HSGs and ordering that. They have the ability to do the laparoscopies and the hysteroscopies for surgical evaluation. Um, a lot of them don't automatically jump to that just because it's, if they're getting that far, a lot of times they'll send to us. Um, Looking at the uterine evaluation, um, some OBs can do the saline sonograms. Others don't have as easy access to ordering that. Like they can do it. They just don't, they don't have the stuff to do it as easily. And the timing is difficult too, because it has to be timed at the exactly. right window That's of time. actually a huge part of all of this and mm -hmm. that the yeah. timing is important. And we, our offices are built for that. General mm -hmm. OB plans are seeing everybody and it's just technically They can't get you in at the spur of the moment, basically. Yeah. 
Exactly. While we're talking about ultrasounds, oftentimes when you'll go into either your OB-GYN or your REI, you will get a pelvic ultrasound. A couple of things to note. So (laughs) number one, this is not going to be the ultrasound on your belly. Okay. It is going to be a vaginal ultrasound, which means that we're going to use a long, narrow probe um, that has a condom and gel on it. And we're going to go take some good pictures of your uterus and your ovaries and take measurements. Realize- and those condoms that we put in are special ultrasound cover condoms. We did not go to Walgreens and buy the Magnum because it was on <laughs> sale. Like this, yeah. is, this is intentional. There is no flavoring and there are no colors on this. It's just functional to be protective. Exactly, exactly. Which is, I guess, what a regular condom is too. But but an important <laughs> an important thing to know is Maybe that not in Vegas, though. If you Jerry. have an ultrasound with your OB-GYN, there are certain things that they generally don't look at in as much detail as we do in your reproductive endocrinologist office. So a lot of times people will be like, oh, I already had my Roger. ultrasound done. Well, yes, you've had an ultrasound done, but there are things like looking at antral follicle count, looking for septums, bicornea uterus, um, different things like that, abnormalities of the shape of the uterus that that are not normally commented on those ultrasounds. So even though you've had one at your OB-GYN, please don't be surprised if your REI is like, I really need to see live images myself Mm -hmm. and do a little bit more in-depth looking than Mm -hmm. what you may have had beforehand. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And on that same note, looking at pictures, a lot of times the pictures are really terrible. And unless you have your hand on the probe and you're looking around yourself or your ultrasonographer does, it's really hard to see. And a great example of that happened to me just the other day. I had a patient who came in and had mentioned that she knew she had fibroids. And so she even read the report, oh, I've got a three centimeter one and I've got a four centimeter one. And I thought, well, you know, I I said, well, I'd like to look again just to kind of see what we see. Well, we we put the wand in and the probe in and my ultrasonographer who has 30 years of experience doing this every day, all day, she couldn't see anything because apparently there was a much larger fibroid there somewhere that was really shadowing everything else. So in that particular patient, we're actually going to get an MRI. And if I just looked at the report, I would have been like, oh, she didn't have very big fibroids. Everything's fine. And in reality, you really couldn't even see her endometrium, which is a really integral and important part of doing the um, the vaginal probe ultrasound. So it's that targeted experience that you're getting with, with specifically the fertility stuff that, you know, even if it's not the the doc themselves doing it. Like our ultrasonographers, ultrasonographers in our offices tend to be there for years to decades Mm -hmm. because they just, they're good at what they do and getting accurate egg counts, getting accurate anatomy, fibroids, knowing when the ectopic is there, seeing when it's a paratubal cyst Mm -hmm. versus ovarian cyst, like all of those things make huge differences to us. And so we kind of drill them into our ultrasonographers and they get really, really good at at seeing those things. So as you say, and that's very dependent on the person that does the ultrasound. And so I guess as Carrie was saying, we have really well-trained people that do it. And it's, it's not everybody that does a vaginal probe ultrasound does it equally. It's, it's really a skill, a difficult skill that people acquire over years and years. Yeah. So talking about the egg evaluation. So we've talked about ultrasounds and the differences between them that you might get in each of those respective offices. The AMH level or anti-Mullerian hormone that we order, that is not time dependent. So that is easy ordered by whichever office. What is the third component of egg testing that we will sometimes order? Day three labs. So mm-hmm. estrogen, FSH, and LH. Right. Now, can you get this in both types of offices? You can. You can. But again, your OB-GYN's office, I don't want to say that they're, they're, as you mentioned, they're doing so many things that when you call with your period, they're not set up to be like, 
oh, we need to do your day three labs where this is like all, we work on everybody's period. So you have to, yeah, we have to work on everybody. Like (laughs) it's it's this beautiful cycle that everybody's going through on their periods. And so we just have it set up. And so um, oftentimes when we get FSH and estradiols, it, they aren't necessarily correctly timed. Um, so it's something that we we have to be aware of. So um, it's not that you can't get it with your OB-GYN, but just make sure it should be on cycle day one, two, three, four at the latest. Um, and, you know, sometimes we'll see people who get the labs mid-cycle towards their end of the cycle. And, and yes, those are giving, that gives us some information, but it's not the information we're really aiming to get. Yeah, because FSH hormone is really time dependent. It's a big difference if you do a day three lab versus day seven or eight lab, because that's when FSH is starting to go up. And high is bad if we see it on day two or three, but if we see it on day seven or eight or nine, not so bad. It's normal. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's normal. Yeah. And, and sometimes it's pure luck of the literal draw of, you know, you happen to be in your OBGYN's office on day two, three, four, and they were mm-hmm. able to get it and nail the timing, or you were happening you happen to be able to get the lab appointment for the right day. Um, but a lot of times it's just not logistically possible. Yeah. Um, let's talk about the male half of, of testing. And okay, so before we hop to males, there's another group of people that I want to talk about are, are people who are not ovulating on a regular basis. Okay. That's, that's a group that we, I see a big difference in what OB-GYN's order versus what you come to see in REI. So in, in my practice, I often see if they have an ir, if they're having irregular periods, they'll often get, you know, like we talked about the AMH level, they'll probably get their thyroid checked. They may get a prolactin level. Prolactin level is a hormone secreted by your brain that normally makes you get breast milk after you have babies, but it can be a little off and it can make your periods a little irregular. And so Sometimes OB-GYNs may order that. Um, As a reproductive endocrinologist, our evaluation for somebody that we're concerned about having PCOS or polycystic ovarian syndrome um, is is a, is more in depth. There are things, um, there are other hormones that we're going to look at. Things like seventeen hydroxyprogesterone. We're going to um, check something called DHEAS, which is a, a hormone created by your adrenal gland. Um, we'll often check your lipids. Um, because we know that, or your cholesterol levels, because people with PCOS do tend to have more elevated um, cholesterol levels, even if they are normal weight. We're also going to be checking your blood sugar, either with a blood glucose level or a hemoglobin A1C, which shows us kind of the average blood sugar over the past three months. Um, so we're, we're, we're generally going to do more testing than what you may have already had. Well, all right. Switching over to the guys. Do OBGYNs like to treat men? No. No. No, they did not. <laughs> they did not go into it for all of that. And so some of them will order some of the basic semen analysis testing. Others of them will say, have your have your male partner go get his stuff evaluated or just go see the RE. Um, as opposed to the REs where we don't we don't have a singular patient. We oftentimes have couples because it's it's the unit, whatever the unit may be that that has that. And so that brings up the the other component of that, which is that a lot of our patients don't have a partner. They have a partner of the same sex. And so we know that there's automatic stuff that we are going to have to provide that, that they don't have easy, ready access to, whether that's donor sperm, donor eggs, gestational carrier to carry the pregnancy, all of those things. And so we are we are totally set up to do that, whereas most OBGYNs just don't have that capacity because it's 
it's such a subspecialized part of what we do that it's not reasonable to expect them to have that capacity. Well, one thing to say about the sperm count too, Kieran, you may be getting to this, but I've noticed we have like seven states that are around Tennessee. So we have a lot of people that come from different places. And a lot of times, or at least some of those places, particularly that are pretty far away, their doctors a lot of times will order sperm tests. And a lot of times they send them to the local hospital. And, you know, the collection room's like right off the waiting room and they don't give them any parameters or tell them when they should collect or how long they should abstain for. And sometimes, and, you know, this doesn't happen everywhere, but, you know, I'm, I'm being, I'm over-exaggerating a little bit, but sometimes it can sit there for, you know, a while. And, you know, we know there's a time constraint strain on when we should look at the sperm. And so some of the outline, lots of the outline sperm tests that we get are not quite as accurate as they really should be. And so there's a time frame. There's, you know, we don't want them to sit for very long. We want to get them within 45 minutes to an hour and be able to look at them within that time frame. Um, we want the male partner to ejaculate somewhere between two to five days. We don't want them to wait longer to ejaculate or ejaculate too soon because the numbers are thrown off. Um, and some of the outline um, labs that we deal with too use WHO World Health Organization standards from 20 years ago. And I'm not exaggerating. I saw a patient True. two days ago and this has been a known problem for years with these certain hospitals that still use the wrong criteria. So I had a guy that had a sperm count of 50 million, which was a great sperm count. And he thought it was low and the WHO standards have changed because we know that men can actually be fertile with a much lower sperm concentration. And so that's the other thing to look at. So generally, when you come to our office, we'll want to have you repeat it again in kind of a standard way so that really know if there's a sperm issue or not, basically. Another difference that you'll see from the male perspective is that we may do additional testing on men more than just the plain old semen analysis. Um, additional testing could include things like sperm QT, looking at um, genes that are held within the sperm that can be turned on or off abnormally. And these genes determine how well a sperm can bind to penetrate and actually fertilize the egg. Um, some of us may do some testing looking at something called DNA fragmentation. And sometimes we'll even do blood work um, looking at hormone levels that can contribute to to, um, you know, abnormal sperm production. And while we're talking about sperm production, I'm just going to get on my soapbox for just a minute. Guys, do not start testosterone. Oh my goodness. Do not start testosterone. If you have low testosterone levels and you need something, go to a urologist. Make sure they know that you have plans of creating a family in the future and get the appropriate treatment. Sometimes that is testosterone with other things at the same time, but understand that if you take testosterone in any way, shape, or form, injections, pill pellets, creams, pills, what whatever it is, it can actually shut down the communication between your brain and your testes, and sometimes we can't reawaken it, okay? So it's very real like we understand you want to have good, strong testosterone levels and it makes you feel great, but we also want to make sure we have swimmers. So, And that's the one thing when you see a patient and you, they've written that down that they take testosterone, there's the good and the bad. The bad is we think the sperm is going to be low or non-existent. A lot of times the good news is once you stop it after three, four or five months, the sperm numbers will come back to whatever their baseline was. And we hope that but baseline is normal. But not, but not always. That's not right. Always. Not always. All right. Cool beans. Well, this has been a jam-fact packed episode. <laughs> and um, to our audience, thank you so much for listening. Be sure to tune in next week for more. 
Be sure to subscribe, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We appreciate that. Say hello on Instagram, say hello on Facebook, like us and follow us and say hi. You can also visit us on fertility.suncensor.com to submit specific questions. All questions will be answered on our Ask the Doc segment. Um, even leave us episode ideas or other ideas. We really love to hear from you. As always, this podcast is intended for entertainment and is not a substitute for medical advice from your own physician. All right, we'll talk to you soon. Bye. 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 Did you know 64% of employers added a family building benefit because an employee asked for it? No matter the size of your organization, you have the power to make a difference for current and future employees. Want to know where to start? Progeny is here to help. Progeny is a family building benefits company that has been helping employees and employers advocate for increased access to effective and equitable fertility and family building benefits for over seven years. To get the resources that can help you make a difference, visit progyny.com forward slash talk to HR today.